the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the one hour of the week where we get a little bit nerdy. My name is indeed Elna Schutz and I'm here with Lebo Madisha. Hello Elna. So today on the show we are talking about wild animals in captivity because of a particular video that's gone viral. Oh, Shamba the lion. I've oh. seen that video all around, eh? Poor Shamba. Shame. I, I really thought that it was a terrible video. It was, but it did bring up some issues that we need to look into. Right, let's just catch people up who might not have seen the video. This happened at the Marakele Predator Center near Tapazimbi in Limpopo. And the owner of the center is 72-year-old Michael Hodge. And he had raised the 10-year-old Shamba from the time he was a cub. That's quite tragic because now his little cub, his little cub ended up attacking him. Yeah, so actually this... This seems to be normal procedure. So Hodge, Mr. Hodge did walk into the enclosure quite regularly. And the way they would do it is the lion would be distracted by somebody else. And then he would open the enclosure and uh, the lion would come out when Hodge is safely back in the vehicle. That's how I understand it. But that day of all days, Shabba decided to turn, ran and attacked him. And that is so tragic. Not only for Mr. Hodge, but for Shamba who ended up getting shot luckily Mr. Hodge survived this attack yeah so the lion did die and it caused a lot of jokes on the internet there were <laughs> lots of memes if you want to look at that go onto Twitter I'm sure you'll find a lot of Shamba the lion jokes um, but as you said earlier it is a quite a serious incident and it's been an opportunity for organizations to call out the dangers of keeping wildlife in captivity and allowing these kinds of interactions there's a group including the endangered wildlife trust and bloodlines that have asked the minister of environmental affairs for stricter regulations in this sector and actually there aren't any strict regulations in place about keeping carnivores like you don't have to know who has them, why they have them, what are they doing with the animals. So they could be running a circus with the poor animals. It's That just boggles my mind. And I have to think about it whenever uh, somebody goes to one of these sort of uh, pet the lion cub events. It, it makes me a little bit nervous. Like, do we really know. know who's keeping these animals? Yeah, and um, you might remember that documentary a few years ago, Blood Lions. It's... There's, I don't know, there's a lot of things that I think is problematic about this sector and I'm glad that this brings up questions around the keeping of wild animals in captivity or even as pets, even if it works out while they're little. So later in the show, we have a story about that specifically, wild animals in captivity and the science around it. Then we have our unscience. We will talk about what might happen if our son dies. So not sun like like offspring, sun no, like in like the one that's in the sky. The big yellow one. Yes, that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> then later our scientist behind the science is Professor Ntobeko Ntusi. He is the head of the Department of Medicine at the University of Cape Town and specializes in heart diseases in an African context. If you think, Oh, I'm too young for that, Elna, don't miss out. I think it might be really eye opening. And before that, we get into our news, of course. So you can join us on the social medias. You can share all your stories with us on Facebook and Twitter. It's at VowFM. And you can get us on our WhatsApp line at 084-078-4912. Or you can tweet us at VowFM, hashtag Science Inside. Before we get into Shamba the Line and everything else, the news will be up next. This week's Science Headline. So looking at the headlines and some of the things that are happening in the science world, what do you have for us, Lebo? Um, today's news comes from the Science Daily and the science, the School of Science of the University of Indianapolis. Okay. As we celebrated Mother's Day this weekend, social media sites were flooding with pictures and messages illustrating the role that mothers play in children's lives and in society in general. So today's story taps on the science behind mother and daughter and child rather relationships. Although this may be a reality to many people, can you imagine your life without your mother? 
I really can't. I'm very close with my mom, but I am very aware of that relationship. I know of so many people that have grown up without a mother, lost theirs later in life, or have a mother, but aren't very close to them for whatever reason. And I know that everybody deals with this in different ways. People sometimes choose to have distance from their mom, but still, it's not having a mom um, from when you grow up obviously has a big effect on you in some way. Definitely. While there are plenty of emotional and practical effects, scientists have also looked at what it might mean in the neurological sense, at least in animals. Ah, Looking at the brain. (laughs) According to new animal studies, when a baby is taken away from its mother in the early stages of its life, the baby experiences a very traumatic event which significantly alters the baby's future brain development. Oh, wow. I wouldn't have thought that it would have such a lasting effect on the brain. How was this done? Tell us more. Well, the study was conducted by an associate professor of psychology called Professor Christopher Lapish. They removed a nine-day-old rat from its mother for 24 hours, which is a very crucial period in brain development. Following this, brain scans revealed that unlike animals that were not separated from their mothers... Uh, in this crucial period, the ones that were separated showed significant bra- uh, behavioral and brain abnormalities in adulthood. Okay, this is of course very relevant if you are a rat or if you care about <laughs> rats, but I'm always very careful to just equate these kind of studies as this is how it is in humans. Yes, that is an important distinction to make, of course. Professor Lepish states that. Rats and human brains have very similar structure and connectivity. So understanding what happens in the brain of a young rat that has been separated from his, from its mother gives us an important insight of this trauma and in its, its effects on a human brain. Okay. And um, the researchers also hope that more, the more they study and understand how the brain responds, the closer they'll be to developing new therapies that would reverse the neurological changes that take place during the traumatic period. Oh, wow. Well, if you look at some of the rats in Joburg, I can believe that there's a link to humans <laughs> because they are so scary and they will not run away when they see a human. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but on a serious note, how did they come to this conclusion? Okay, during the course of the study, what they discovered that there was a memory loss happening and less communication happening between the two spheres of the brain. So the left and right hemispheres didn't have much communication. Okay. And this was observed in animals that were separated from their mothers. They also, uh, sorry, there were also other neurological changes that were observed. These were seen as clues about how this traumatic event in the early life of a child, whether animal or human, could increase a person's uh, risks of obtaining schizophrenia in the future. Mm. Whether this is true, directly true in the same way in humans or not, I just wish we could protect children from this kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. We don't want to expose kids to such traumatic events in general. And we may not be able to stop all these things from happening or treat all the situations where mothers are not present. But this kind of research can help with policies and interventions that try to lessen stress on our children. One way is making sure that there are mother figures present in the lives of kids who don't have mothers. That's so true because I think that is something that everybody um, can relate to or, uh, or, or perhaps try to ensure whether it's a grandmother or an aunt, you know, a mother figure doesn't necessarily have to be biological to have a positive effect. Exactly. Okay, so Lebo, in my story today, it does um, come from NPR, Science Alert, lots of places we're reporting on this. And it's just a light note to do with the passing of one of science's great minds. All right, let me take a guess. You're talking about Stephen Hawking? Yes, yes, I am indeed. Um, The famed theoretical physicist died in March, you might remember, at the age of 76, and the funeral has already taken place. But now a memorial service is planned for June, where his ashes will be laid at Westminster Abbey. Wow, wow, wow. That is quite a special place, eh? Yeah, some really big names there, including Sir Isaac Newton and Charles Darwin himself, just to mention some.
Oh my goodness, that must be quite an exclusive event, hey? You would think so, but actually, even though I'm sure it'll be quite special, there will be a thousand people allowed, and it's not just big, famous minds and, you know, scientists. It's actually, in a way, open to the public. So what you can do is you can apply for a ticket and the top thousand people, I don't know if it's done at random, I'm not sure, but a thousand people will be chosen to attend. And if you're listening to this live on air, you might still have a chance. You can still put in your ballot before midnight tomorrow night, the 15th of May. You do have to fly yourself to England, though. Let me just be clear about that. Oh, okay. So if we can find me a sponsor, yeah, I can go over. Yeah, go, oh, go celebrate cool. the life of Stephen Hawking. And you do have some stiff competition, though, because in the first day of opening, over 12 thousand people had already applied so there's quite a quite a lot of people wanting to go to this oh my gosh this sounds like a video like a beyonce concert <laughs> like what's going on guys well a <laughs> lot of people did really admire stephen hawking and still do for all his work but there's something really unique about this and this is why i bring this up when you apply for a ticket you know how sometimes on online forms you have to give your date of birth like if you're entering a competition or like putting in your tax certificate and you sort of have to drop down mm, i was born in feb oh, yeah. you know that thing and then you'll choose your uh, you'll choose your birth date which will be 1990 or 1994 or whatever it is mm -hmm. well you have to do that here also except that your date options are all the way up to the 31st of december in 2038 sorry did i hear you right 2038 yep is that a glitch in the system, maybe? <laughs> and just they're being extra careful. No, actually, the Stephen Hawking Foundation has confirmed that this is on purpose. And get this, it's in case in the future there are time travelers that would like to come back to attend the service. Wow, this sounds like an episode of a cartoon or something. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very typical sort of Hawking's humor because he um, has been asked through his life, he had been asked about time travel, whether it's real, whether he thinks. etc was something that he got asked quite a bit and he once mentioned that he threw a party for time travelers no. just in case <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh he threw a whole party for possible time travelers yeah so it is didn't sound as much fun as you might think because basically what it involved was him sitting around at a party for several hours a party about which he had told nobody and then ages later, he invited people to the party. He sent out invitations um, to two people just thinking that, you know, if time traveling is possible in the future, they would know about the invitation and then go back to the party. How cool is that? I, I mean, I got to give it to him. He's quite a cool person yeah. for thinking of that. Yeah, so I think that... It's so cool how Hawking, Stephen Hawking's always had not just an incredible mind, but he had such a wonder for science. He had this ability to make people laugh at times and, and be connected to it and see it as part of our world. And there's such a wonder about it that yeah. it really does suit him that even in his death, he's doing things that crack us up yeah. about science. <laughs> I mean, this could be a proper cartoon <laughs> episode, like man plans a party, for possible time travelers yeah. and no one pitches but see if but then in the episode people could actually pitch yeah. like these amazing characters from the future just pitch and yeah and we'd have to change this whole science inside episode because if people do arrive we'd have to come back yes and redo the story and redo this whole segment <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow! <laughs> that, and that is just uh, some silliness in our in our science news. Um, we do have some other things coming up in the show in just a second. Um, there'll there'll be a story about Shamba the lion. How are you feeling about that one, Lebo? I'm quite interested. Like, I want to know what's going to happen with the story. What are we going to find out about Shamba? Like in terms of other animals rather how we're going to relate this story to other animals in captivity and how we can better make sure that they are secure that is all up i will have answers for you hopefully it's all up after the break this is the science inside with elma
Hello and welcome to the show. It is indeed the Science Inside. Remember, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. It's at VALFM and use the hashtag Science Inside. We are going to go to a story now which relates to a story that's been all over Twitter recently. A video of a lion called Chumba the Lion um, that killed a, uh, well, rather didn't kill, he attacked. Thankfully, the man did survive. And this has brought up a lot of questions around wild animals in captivity. Our producers, Bridget Leper and Lepo Madisha, did do a story on this. Have a listen. I'm Bianca from Save Me Reptile and Exotic Rescue. We can't keep anything indigenous. That's our one big thing with preserving species because then our wildlife and our felts will get pillaged. The animals that we've got, our bearded dragons, our monitors, we've got rats, we've got all sorts of exotics. They were all brought in from other countries or bred in captivity. I don't advise people just adopt exotics and difficult animals. That's how we land up with so many of ours. They get surrendered or brought in because people think that they're cute and cool to have, but they're a lot of work. Um, People think a bearded dragon is cute until a bearded dragon regurgitates worms and crickets all over you because it got a fright. We run a shop and then when Ilonka and Hanika go home, they still clean and feed for eight hours afterwards, sleep for four hours, wake up and do it again. It's not a small hobby, it's not a cat or a dog. If you want an exotic, research it. There are animals that will be suited to you. I, for example, can do the hedgehogs and some of the lizards. I can't do things that I need to feed rodents to. If you want to keep them and you want to preserve them, find something that is compatible with your lifestyle. That's the best advice I can give you. We do get bitten, but there is nothing we have that could pose a life-threatening danger to us. Our tetanus shots are up to date. We're good. The Maya snake actually eats two mice a week. Basically clean the tank once a month. Well, every week I put new fresh water. Very, very low maintenance. Well, with a corn snake in captivity, they can live up to over 20 years. But I don't take it out because they do get very stressed out also. Because of uh, winter, they're going to hibernation. So to prevent that, you keep the temperature regulated to about 28 degrees, 25, 28 degrees in the tank. They don't go into hibernation. Otherwise, like last year, went into hibernation. They don't eat for three months. They're basically hibernating them. Mine hasn't attacked, but if you are rough with it, then it will strike at you. Tortoises are very silent. They don't require like a lot of work. Most of the day, it's like sitting in its own little burrow. But um, upon like further, further research, they're like one of those endangered species and stuff. So I had to like actually get a permit for that. Otherwise, I would have actually gotten up. I would have gotten arrested. You actually need to make sure that there's like the correct vegetation for the tortoises. There's enough space for the tortoises to exercise. So those things I actually like to look at when they do their assessment. I've got like a, a vegetable patch. I've got lettuce, I've got spinach, I've got pumpkin uh, leaves and all that. So that's what, what they basically eat. Well, now we actually have a second one, which is, which is like a small one. I don't know where did that one come from. I didn't actually collect it or anything. I just woke up one day and it was there in my garden. Silent call from the other adult tortoise and then it decided to like vacate there or something like that. And I just had to like update my payment to keep those two. So now it's just... In 39 unique cases, humans were reported to have been attacked or killed by captive tigers between 1998 and 2001. Scientists working in the Department of Earth and Environment at the Franklin and Marshall College sourced this information by analyzing 30 international media documents. In the United States, seven people were reportedly killed and at least 27 were injured per year. And of all these incidents, majority of the tigers were privately owned. The research indicated that almost half of the victims were classified as visitors, while almost 30% of the victims were under the age of 20. These results suggest that the victims underestimated the dangers posed by the direct contact with these wild animals. This brings us to our topic for today. Dr. Kelly Manovic, who is a large carnivore specialist at the Endangered Wildlife Fund, speaks to us about wild animals and their interaction with human beings. 
In the wild, carnivores are actually quite frightened of people and are generally not very dangerous at all. So, for example, wild cheetahs would never attack people. Wild lions very seldom attack people. But once you put them into the captive environment, everything changes. So they start to lose that innate fear of people. They also start to associate people with food and reward. And this is what makes them very dangerous. And that's when these attacks are happening. Another danger of grooming wild animals is the inevitable prospect of the animal associating humans with food. This is one of the reasons why people who visit game reserves, zoos and other animal sanctuaries are advised not to feed the animals. So what the responsible facilities are doing is that they don't let the animals associate people with being fed. They often feed in remote ways, either by pulley systems or by leaving food in an area and then remotely opening gates, that type of thing. At the minute, those animals associate people with food. There's already a very dangerous association. Captive ownership of large wild animals is risky business, even though numbers of private ownership is on the incline worldwide annually. Dr. Manovic warns against interaction with wild animals and in this insert she explains why. Wild animals will always be just that, wild animals. And there's always going to be a risk associated with interacting with them. So you can never ever say that a wild animal is totally tame or totally safe. I mean, just last week we had a giraffe kill somebody. Wild animals, they remain big, they remain strong, and they are very dangerous animals and should be treated with the required respect of a strong wild animal. It turns out our beloved furry friend, the domestic dog, is not so safe after all. It is said that South Africa has the highest incidence of domestic attacks on humans than anywhere else in the world. According to a law firm that was representing a man who was bitten by his neighbor's bull bull in Cape Town last year, dog bites account for tens of millions of injuries annually. In South Africa, 76 to 94 percent of animal bite injuries and fatalities are caused by dogs. In 2017, the SPCA admitted 167 dogs. 51 of which were impounded after attacking people or dogs. Dr. Manovic explains why dogs can also pose a serious danger to society. Well, dogs actually come from wolves and they've been domesticated for thousands and thousands of years. But also every single year, hundreds of people are attacked by domestic dogs and people are killed by domestic dogs. And still, after all those thousands of years of domestication, domestic dogs certainly aren't safe. And um, you've got children around dogs, you need to train your dogs, make sure dogs are well socialized, that they don't bite people and bite other dogs. So even after all those thousands of years of, of domestication, our domestic dogs remain quite dangerous. In recent media reports, we have witnessed the results of human interaction with wild animals, often the results being fatal, either for the human being or the wild animal. Dr. Manwick talks about possible approaches to this problem. I don't think killing the animal actually solves the problem. In nearly every incident that I've seen, and I've been doing a bit of internet research, and I've found 37 incidents captive carnivores have attacked people. And I would say in nearly every single incident, there's been some form of negligent behavior or situations that were less than ideal where safety was not prioritized. And if somebody is inside a camp with a captive carnivore, you're putting your life at risk. And to then kill the animal as a result, I don't think is a responsible outcome. They should rather change the circumstances where the animal can't get to people to injure them or kill them, and rather solve the problem that way around rather than killing the animals. Caring for captive wildlife encompasses more than providing the proper nutrition and physical care. They also need mental stimulation to keep busy as they would in the wilderness. Large wild animals that exhibit abnormal behaviors such as pacing up and down or chewing on things display signs of being bored and these could be telltale signs of impending danger. So I was fortunate enough to go to a really good view in the States a few years ago for a conference and I was really fascinated when I watched what they do with their lions. The, the zookeepers would build a great big cardboard giraffe out of um, boxes and cardboard pipes and stuff. And they set it up in the camp for the lions, with the lions locked safely away in their night house. They'd set up this cardboard giraffe and they'd open up the gates, let the lions out, the lions would come and they'd break this whole thing down and play with all the cardboard and the children could actually watch the lions from a safe place. 
to breaking down this cardboard giraffe. And that gives the lion something to do. And um, you also find that in many other reputable zoos, their feeding regimes try to mimic what happens in the wild. So you'll see, for example, part of these animals that live in water, like say for polar bears, they'll often freeze the food into a great big block and chuck it into the water. And the polar bear has to find this block and catch it and then pull pieces out of it. There's a lot done to ensure that these animals aren't just sitting inside four fences staring outside all day and that they're actually having things to do and keeping them mentally stimulated. Because an animal that's not mentally stimulated is really quite a sad situation. The problem with private ownership has large implications for large carnivore conservation, for public health and animal welfare. In the following, we find out why capturing wildlife for commercial use is problematic and should be avoided. The, the captive animal, once it's been released into the wild, for example, it may know, have an instinct to hunt, but the wild animals understand their habitat. They, they know where they can go, they know where they're safe, they know where it's dangerous, they know where the food is. So, you know, it's not just about having the existence of an animal, it's about having a functioning animal. It's a bit like taking people who live in the city and saying to them, here we go, we're going to release you back in the wild and plopping them out in the middle of the wilderness and expecting them to know how to function. You don't have that experience and that skill set, whereas if I live in the wilderness, I know what I can eat, I know where I can go, I know where I'm safe. We often compare captive animals to people in prison. They're still humans, they still have rights, we should still care about them, but they certainly don't contribute to society. They can't work, they can't pay tax, and that kind of thing. And that's very much what animals in captivity are to the conservation sector. They don't contribute at all to the conservation of the species in the wild. In the following, Dr. Manovic talks about the difficulties faced by wildlife conservationists and the problems with legislation. The laws can be quite complicated because you've got nine different provinces in South Africa. Each province handles the national legislation quite differently. But in terms of lions and cheetahs, they are all protected under national legislation, which is called PROPS, the Threatened or Protected Species Legislation. And you need permits to carry out any restricted activity. So a restricted activity would be something like keeping it in captivity, immobilizing it, transporting it, possessing it, anything like that. That's all done under permit. But just because something is legal doesn't necessarily mean it's right. A lot of stuff has been legal in the past and it wasn't necessarily right or responsible. So most people, in fact, involved in these attacks with captive carnivores are keeping those carnivores legally. The law, unfortunately, is not sufficient to protect people from the, the, the possible consequences of these interactions. She adds on why captive breeding has become so rampant and the problems that come with allowing this. Of these lions, the shitting of them after they get too big to be petted with or walked with. And now also South Africa is exporting lion bones from captive bred lions into the East for use in traditional medicines. So think very carefully about what you're supporting because the cub that you're petting and stroking and walking with today could end up being a hunting trophy or a bag of bones and exported to the East. That story was produced by Bridget LePere and Lebo Madisha, who is right here with me in studio. Lebo, I, I said it before, I'll say it again. As cute as those little cubs are, and I know you want that picture on Instagram where you're like, <laughs> look, I'm with Simba. Maybe don't. Yeah, don't do it, guys. Simba will eat you. Simba will definitely devour you. Oh, well, that's a little bit, a little <laughs> okay. bit harsh. Okay, he won't like make you a meal but he'll think oh opportunity to get a meal i i just i just think there are enough ways to appreciate and to uh, support and to conserve uh, the lives of wild animals without turning them necessarily into fluffy at home honestly i feel like we should embrace the wild and keep the wild animals in the wild let them flourish in their natural habitats at the end of the day exactly and if in my opinion if you really feel so strongly about them why not support them in other ways so go volunteer for someone like the endangered wildlife trust maybe support them financially they're doing incredible work to help these animals in the wild and there are many organizations like them you can do that more than necessarily just going putting another picture on Instagram. Exactly, the picture, like this animal will never even see this picture, so it's pointless for them. Are you saying 
Like for the animal, it's pointless. This picture is not going to mean anything to them. Because there's no Instagram for lions exactly. yet. Exactly. Right. Uh, yet. I, I don't think that's the problem here. <laughs> you have been listening to The Science Inside. Next up, we are going to Unscience. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on The Science Inside. Hello and welcome back. It is now time for the little part of the show called Unscience. It's where we look at the stranger side of research. It's all the weird and wonderful things about science that you might not might not think is what people focus on, but it is indeed. Sometimes it's not just weird, it's very practical things that are really beautiful. And today's story is one of those. It's produced by Harmony Malefi. It comes from sciencenews.org at the University of Manchester. Music is by Royalty Free Music and Pack TV sound effects. Let's get into it. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. I am here once again with Lebo Madisha. Hello, Alna. So, what do you think would happen to our world if the sun died? Mm, nothing good. Let me just say <laughs> it like that. Everything will go dark. We will all die. I don't care how much solar-powered like energy you have. It's over. A little bit of optimism, Nyara, you know? No. Lights out completely. Yeah, just done. <laughs> We need, uh, we need the sun, guys. It's very, very simple science. We really do. But at least we'll get to sleep for longer. Okay. Well, scientists have actually tried several experiments and they were still not sure what would happen to us if the sun actually died. But recently, astronomers predicted that it would turn into a massive ring of shining interstellar gases and dust known as planetary nebula. Hmm. Sounds interesting. Tell me more. Now, this planetary nebula usually marks the end of all active stars' lives and trace the star's transition from a red giant to a a degenerative dwarf. But scientists were still not sure if the sun in our solar system would follow this same fate, as they thought it would be too low in mass to create a nebula. Okay, that makes sense, even though it our sun is a star just like any other star if it has such a low mass it might react differently but this theory that they're trying to prove here what did they do with it exactly okay so what this team and uh, from the university of manchester developed uh, they developed a new outstanding data model that is meant to predict the life of stars. Now, this model predicted the brightness of the mass of gas and dust released from the stars, which is called the envelope. Okay. And this envelope can be as much as half the star's mass. And also, this envelope is evidence that the star's core is running out of fuel. Okay, so if we see this envelope, what happens next? Okay, it's only then that the hot core makes the envelope shine brightly for approximately 10,000 years. This makes the planetary nebula visible. However, some would be so bright that they can be seen from far distances uh, where the star itself wouldn't be necessarily visible to us. Thus, the old low-mass stars would make fainter planetary nebulae than the young massive stars. This model showed that after the ejection of the envelope, the star heats up three times faster than it was shown in the the older models. This made it easier to see that a lower mass star such as our sun can can produce a bright planetary nebula. Okay, so these planetary nebulas are the pretty stuff, right? If you think of Hubble Telescope, those amazing images of the purple and the pink and the orange, that's what we're talking that about. That is exactly right? what we're talking about. So it sounds like our lovely sun is a little bit of an outlier here. Yes, it is actually. Quite a special one we've got here. It was found that the sun is almost the lowest mass star, but it can still produce a visible faint planetary nebula. That's quite amazing, I think. This was us- This is actually an unusual thing as stars that are even like a few percentages smaller than our sun don't produce this nebula okay so we're small but we're still falling into this pattern so we're like the middle uh, like we we, we like awkward middle child but we still fall into the class of the pretty stuff yes not that you and i will 
ever see this. Yeah. But okay. <laughs> so tell me something though. Can this model really be applied to both these things? To the stars and then transitions of uh, stars like our sun? Yes, it can. Because now not only are we able to measure the the presence of the stars of ages approximately of like billions of years in distant galaxies, which is commonly difficult to see. This range is quite wide. But we we even may be we ooh, excuse me, my tongue is twisting around today. <laughs> but we even may have found out what the sun will do when it actually does die. So does this mean we're going we're going the way of the dinosaurs? All of us will just go floop, gone. We'll all be there when this happens. I mean, not you and me. Actually, no, no one will be around because by that time we will be dead. The humans will be erased because our approximate lifetime is about one billion years from now. That is, so. The sun has been increasing in brightness also by about 10% every billion years. Okay, that doesn't sound like that much. Yeah, that's what you say. That's what you say now. But this little 10% actually makes a big difference because this increase in brightness could essentially end our Earth. Oh, Oceans no. will evaporate and the surface will, not be, it will be too hot for water to form. So it seems it will be like we never even existed on this planet. Wow. But instead, everything on the planet will turn into beautiful colors and will <laughs> appear in the in the Space Hubble telescope of aliens. If there are aliens out yeah. there. Yes, <laughs> and from beauty from tragic occurrences does come beauty, I guess. <laughs> There's always a good ending to the story. And that is unusual, unlikely and science so from the tragic and the beautiful on to other things after the break we'll be talking to our scientists behind the science unusual unlikely unscience this is the science inside with elna hello and welcome to the show my name is indeed elna schutz and i'm here with lebo Yes, hello. So now we go to the scientists behind the science. Today we speak to Professor Ntobeko Ntusi. He is the head of the Department of Medicine at the University of Cape Town and a specialist in cardiology, which has to do, of course, with medical matters of the heart. He has won uh, an award as a NRF researcher um, it's the excellence award for early career or emerging researchers, definitely a very prestigious one. And cardiovascular diseases, which is what he focuses on, are still a leading cause of mortality worldwide. And his work is particularly interesting to us because he tries to understand it in a particularly African context. Thank you so much for joining us. Good evening, Elma, and good evening to your listeners. And thank you for having me. I love that your work has been so committed to this issue that is um, is a problem worldwide, but you try to look at, at it from a local or continental perspective. How does one address cardiovascular disease in a particularly African context? So if one looks at uh, cardiovascular disease in industrial or Western countries, um, coronary artery disease where you get flaring of the blood vessels that bring oxygen and nutrients to the muscle of the heart are the commonest cause of cardiovascular mortality and cardiovascular complications. But on the African continent, the spectrum of diseases is completely different and our group focuses on the better understanding of what we call cardiomyopathies, which are disorders of heart muscle, which constitute about a quarter of the presentations of heart failure in hospitalized African patients. Mm. The other condition that we look at in great detail is hypertension, which is probably the commonest cause of uh, cardiovascular disease amongst uh, poor people globally. 
and then the third uh, category of uh, conditions that we study are what we collectively call inflammatory heart diseases and this comprises a spectrum of disorders that include infections of the heart so conditions like hiv tb infective endocarditis and rheumatic heart disease but also autoimmune and drug related uh, reactions that also involve the heart and what our group does is to use advanced non-invasive imaging techniques like mri and ct scans to make diagnosis, to stratify phenotypes of um, cardiovascular disease, and increasingly to use um, these imaging biomarkers to understand outcomes of cardiovascular disease in our context, and also to use them as surrogate endpoints for clinical trials. So that's been our contribution to improving the understanding of cardiovascular disease amongst Africans. Evening, Dr. Ntusi. It's Lebo here. I'm going to jump in with a question, if you don't mind. Indeed. Okay, so I'm a youngster who's under 30, and I'm not really concerned about these cardiovascular issues. I don't feel like they affect me as much. But what are the factors that I need to be aware of? And people like me, what do we need to be aware of? And what lifestyle changes do we need to implement? Lebo, that is a very important question. And it's a common myth that cardiovascular disease is a disease of the elderly. But I hope to bust that myth tonight and uh, leave our listeners with a message that cardiovascular disease affects people of all ages. And common symptoms of cardiovascular disease are fairly ubiquitous and most patients will present with fatigue, breathlessness, especially when lying flat and swelling of the legs or chest pain. And um, many of these uh, clinical um, features um, may signify underlying heart disease. The important um, lifestyle changes that one has to make include stopping smoking, moderation of alcohol intake, And if you have known cardiovascular disease in the form of hypertension or diabetes or elevated uh, lipids like cholesterol, making sure that those are treated to target. And then very importantly, increasing the consumption of fruit and vegetables in your diet, reducing the amount of dietary salt intake, and of course, increasing the amount of physical activity. All of these will improve your cardiovascular risk profile and reduce the likelihood of either developing or retarding the rate of progression of cardiovascular disease. Mm. Professor, as you work in this field, what is your next big goal within um, clinical breakthroughs or within your research? So one of our biggest uh, areas of focus is the better understanding of the genetic underpinnings and mechanisms of cardiovascular disease amongst Africans. And one of the large studies that we're currently running uh, from Cape Town that we hope will be a trans-African study uh, is a study called IMHOTEP, where we're trying to characterize the genetic underpinnings of heart muscle disease amongst Africans. And I think it's important that uh, as Africans, we need to be able to solve the fundamental problems that affect us um, on the continent and not have to rely to, on outsiders uh, to provide um, those answers. And so we really try to uh, improve our understanding of the fundamental concepts around cardiovascular disease causation and outcomes uh, in people of African descent. While, as you say, this is quite a big continental and even worldwide issue, bringing it a little bit more closer to home and making it personal, why did you personally choose to step into this field of research and not a different one? Well, it was uh, partly through serendipity, but also partly through having wonderful role models 
and probably most importantly underpinned by a significant uh, public health interest. So when I was finishing medical school, I uh, attended a riveting lecture by um, George Manson, who is now the deputy director of the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. He comes originally from Ghana, and he painted a very bleak picture uh, that uh, while infections like HIV, tuberculosis, malaria were the biggest killers on the African continent, there was this rising tide of cardiovascular disease and other non-communicable diseases that were increasing in incidence and uh, provided compelling evidence that by the year 2030, um, these would actually be the biggest killer um, of people, not just uh, in other parts of the world, but also amongst Africans. And it was a very compelling lecture which made uh, a profound impression on me. And I decided uh, at that moment that this was an area that I wanted to focus on, particularly because the spectrum of cardiovascular disease amongst Africans is very different. And we understand still very little about the natural history, the optimal therapeutic strategies, and the mechanisms of these uh, disorders that are common in our setting. And I think it is so important for regions to look at what is particular about their projects like you are doing on the African continent and not just taking it for granted that uh, what works in one area or what's particular to one area will be the same everywhere. Just lastly, we love to ask our scientists um, this on the show. What is the one thing that, if I gave you a soapbox here, what would be the one thing that you'd love our listeners uh, to know about your field of research? So I think probably two things that would be important are take-home messages. Uh, The first one relates to your earlier question. Uh, about uh, young people who think that um, they may not be the targets of cardiovascular disease and really to emphasize to our listeners that cardiovascular disease affects people of all ages and everybody is at risk of developing it. And then the second point is that in South Africa, we're already seeing a rising tide of cardiovascular disease. The estimates are that 210 people die every day from heart disease. And my personal belief is that this is a gross underestimate. And if one looks at the causes of um, cardiovascular disease uh, in South Africa, these predominantly relate to hypertension, being by far the commonest uh, uh, form of um, heart disease, followed by rheumatic valvular heart disease and disorders of heart muscle, what we call cardiomyopathies. And certainly for hypertension, this is a largely uh, preventable and treatable risk factor. And it's related uh, to smoking, drinking excessively, eating badly, obesity, and lack of physical activity. And so if people can take up and make choices that promote a healthy lifestyle, much of the burden of cardiovascular disease in this country can be averted or completely reversed. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to be doing is to promote active citizenry where people take greater control of their health and lifestyle through choices that they make. And that means that these statistics don't have to be the way they are. You yourself, listening at home, you have the ability to change change your health and and to hopefully avoid these kinds of problems that are so uh, common, not just on the African continent, but worldwide. Thank you so much. Uh, We've been speaking to Dr. Ntobeko Ntusi. He is the head of the Department of Medicine at UCLA. CT and specializes in cardiology. Thank you for joining us. Much, Elna. Enjoy your evening. <laughs> same, same to you. Uh, do keep listening. You're still on the science inside.
You don't have to be a liker to like things. Welcome back. You have unfortunately missed the show, but there have been some really great things on it. Lebo, what was your favorite part today? I like the Shamba the Lion segment because I feel like we so much put emphasis on observing animals and we cage them instead of letting nature take its course and basically flourish in the wild because you know these animals being kept in captivity basically contributes to their extinction because they're not allowed to go as they're supposed to in the wild mm. so that was a very important segment i think mm, yeah i quite enjoyed our last interview with dr ntobeko ntusi specifically those things that he was talking about factors that we can control as young people to hopefully avoid uh, in future having heart uh, complications or problems he named some like reduce your alcohol use, reducing smoking. The one that hit home for me was eating less salt. Yeah, no, hey. That's a hard one. Yeah, that's a hard one. When you get your slop chips and now you have to be like, I have to put a little bit of less salt. Mm. But you will thank yourself later when <laughs> when you are you are still feeling fit and healthy at 30, 40, 50. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. That was all on the show today. Uh, thank you so much to everyone uh, that was our guest. Yes, thank you to all our guests today and Dr. Ntusi for informing us. Our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Lepere, Harmony Molefi and Glory Mabuza, as well as tech by Kutlano Saame. And you can get us on our podcast at vids.journalism.co.za forward slash science. And on our social media, you can get us on Facebook as The Science Inside. Or you can tweet us at VowFM. You've been listening to Lebohang Madisha and myself, Elna Schutz. The Science Inside is produced by the Vits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. Join us again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on Power 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.